Brothers and sisters, as we come to the Word of God this morning, this uh, first Sunday of Advent, and uh, the first of three messages that I'll have the privilege of bringing to you, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Our scripture reading is going to be from verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, uh, again we would pray, even echoing Elder Michael's prayers, uh, that uh, your word would be so much in our hearts that the words that I speak would be uh, truly uh, guided and directed by the proper understanding of Scripture so that my words would be useful to your spirit to work in us those things that are pleasing to you, that you might fill us with all spiritual wisdom and insight. In order that during this Advent season and at all times, we would walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might bear fruit in every good work, and that we might grow in our knowledge of you especially during these difficult times in which we live, grant us endurance and patience with joy, enabling us to give thanks to you, Father, for sovereignly you are the one who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For sovereignly you transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. May all these great and saving truths be constantly before us as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the three messages that I have the opportunity to bring during this Advent season. I want to, I want to focus on a particular theme. 
Uh, it's a theme about sentiment and sentimentalism. Uh, and you can see in your notes uh, at this section of our worship uh, outline that I'm going to give you in a moment a statement about uh, sentiment and sentimentalism. But first, let me define what I mean by sentiment and then sentimental. The concept of a sentiment uh, as a noun describing something is this. It's, it's a perspective. It's an opinion. It's a thought. It's an idea that is based upon a feeling about a situation. So the concept of a sentiment would be something like this. It is, it is more than simply a perspective. It is a perspective to which there is something of feeling, while then the adjective sentimental would be more the feeling part. Sentiment, sentimental. Sentiment, the noun concept. Sentimental, the adjective. Sentiment, a perspective that includes a sense of feeling, but then sentimental, emphasizing the feeling about which one has the sentiment. And I want to begin here because culturally the Christmas season is one of uh, a lot of sentiments and sentimentalism, even in this postmodern and pagan culture that we live in. We see this very, very clearly. Even though Christmas is a Christian concept, we have all sorts of music at this time of the season, all sorts of songs that are, let's say, freighted with sentimentalism. Songs in which there is no mention at all concerning the birth of Christ. That's a significant window into the nature of our culture and into the nature of the emptiness of human life in this very broken world. Now, coming into that statement that you can read as I read it to you, what I want to say is this, that the sentiment of sentimentalism only has genuine value if the sentiment has an anchor in what is real. But what is real goes deeper than what is current or what is presently circumstantial. If human history has God's purpose, moving it from a past beginning to a future consummation, then the lever and fulcrum of all of history is the coming of Christ into this world and his atoning work on the cross. Christmas and Easter are never to be divided, separated, or celebrated independently of one another in our understanding and in our faith. That is to say, in the most proper sense, in the biblical sense, what makes the cradle evoke the great sentiment that it does is the cross for which the baby was born. Christ is always the baby who was born to die. Now, my point in all of that is to say that we as Christians have important sentiments with respect to Christmas and Easter. And out of those solid, anchored sentiments, anchored into human history, anchored into the things that God has actually done, 
we can say that we can have a lot of sentimentalism about this season and sentimentalism about the Easter season because of what God has truly done. But there is a connection, a necessary connection, between the cradle and the cross. The one cannot be divorced from the other. The season of Advent cannot be separated from Passion Week. Today's theme, looking particularly at this particular passage, and most specifically at verse 21, can be stated this way. That the cradle to the cross connection must always be kept in view. The coming of Christ into the world was so that he could die to save his people from their sins. The cradle is for the sake of the cross. Now, again, verse 21. This is what we read. Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In this one verse, we find three very significant truths. Salvation is the mission. Salvation is for his people. And salvation is from their sins. So let's spend a little bit of time thinking about these three particular truths and ideas as they illustrate and explicate the relationship between the cradle and the cross. Now, first of all, salvation is the mission. That is to say, salvation is the mission of Jesus coming into the world. Now, in the, in the very diluted Christian thinking that we have today, and, and in all the drifts that we have from biblical truth that we find in American Christianity today, even within evangelicalism and sometimes within reform circles, there are a lot of ideas that are being propounded as to why Jesus came. But all of these various ideas can actually be placed under two very significant categories. Uh, what we might call the therapeutic model category, and then what we might call the political social transformation category. So let's think about these for a moment. The therapeutic model is, is that idea about the gospel that tries to tell people again and again that Jesus came to give you your best life now, or Jesus came to give you a better life now, or Jesus came to make your life right now better than it could ever be before. And I remember this uh, way back in the 1970s during my college days. Uh, it was pushed again and again in all sorts of ways that Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And it was interesting at the time that the concept of the abundant life that we might have in Christ was, was very much, as I look back upon it, uh, connected to the kinds of things that we as Americans love. Uh, you're going to be a more successful human being. Uh, you're going to have more of what America promises in terms of the American dream. Um, uh, people who follow Jesus have better health. People who follow Jesus have better grades. People who have followed Jesus have better marriages. People who follow Jesus have better children. On and on and on. Those were the promises that were made again and again. But it was therapeutic. 
because the main idea was that we could have this incredibly best life now. And, and with respect to that, uh, following Jesus meant that he was going to be like our closest friend, but more than a friend, because he was going to be the kind of coach, the kind of guide for life that all of us actually really would want, really need. Following Jesus, following his love, following his wisdom, following his practicing the same concerns that Jesus would have. All of this would make us better people. And because if we were better people, naturally a better life would follow. And that also would include, and you know, some aspects of this was tremendously directed toward you'll make a whole lot more money or you're going to have a whole lot better health. The therapeutic model is not the gospel. And the truth is, very little of the promises of the therapeutic model have ever been true. The therapeutic model is not the gospel. But if the therapeutic model focuses mostly upon the individual and how the individual could have a better life, we have the political social transformational model looking at culture and trying to say how the gospel is all about making the culture or society a better, greater, more just society than it currently is. Now, again, I'm old enough to remember clearly what was going on in the 1960s in terms of a certain brand of this political gospel, uh, rightly called, or back then called, liberation theology, which was the recasting of Jesus as a social Marxist. If any of you have ever read anything about um, liberation theology, you know that uh, you could have a T-shirt that might look like a Che Guevara, but someone else might say, oh, no, that's a picture of Jesus on you. <laughs> it was that kind of a thing. They were almost interchangeable in terms of liberation theology. But there's a current version. It's Jesus recast in the image of the politically progressive left. And most of you have experienced that in somehow in some way if you're doing much reading about what's going on within our culture and within evangelicalism and reform circles and, and churches in America. But the point is, we need to get the gospel right. And we need to get the gospel right biblically. The gospel itself has tremendous consequences. But the gospel itself is not about social, political transformation of the culture. Now, I say this as someone who has been an ardent, involved activist in the pro-life movement since 1978. I can say this as someone who's marched in four Washington, D.C. marches for life. I can say this for someone who, when I pastored in Los Angeles, was nominated and actually awarded uh, the Pastor of the Year by the supervisor of the San Fernando Valley. The gospel, though, is not the pro-life movement. As morally and as biblically significant as the pro-life movement happens to be. But we also must say that the gospel is not the racial reconciliation movement. 
as morally and as biblically significant as that issue is. Because the gospel is not personal therapy. And the gospel is not social transformation. The gospel is about eternal issues. Salvation is the mission of Christ. Salvation is the mission of the gospel. Now that's based upon the eternal realities of heaven and hell. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about Matthew 7. Think about what Jesus says in verses 13 to 14. He's saying to his disciples and to all the rest who were listening to him, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And then he goes on to say, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then toward the end of Matthew's gospel, we have the, the, the great story about the sheep and the goats. The sheep who are arrayed upon the right hand of Christ in all of his glory. The goats who are arrayed on the left hand of Christ in all of his glory. And this is what Jesus says to those who are on the right. He says this as the king. Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Now, we know rightfully that, that what Jesus commends them for happens to be all of the, the good things they did in the world. It's true. All the good things they did in the world. And they did it as unto Christ. But we know that the Bible teaches no one is saved by good works. They are a consequence of what the gospel does in our lives. And reconciling us to the Father and enabling us to have everlasting life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Come, those blessed of the Father, receive the kingdom, inherit the kingdom. And then to those who are on the left, those who are called the goats. And he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because they lived lives in which they had no deep and genuine regard for the lives of others. Because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Such people find it impossible to truly love and care about anyone other than essentially themselves. The point is, is that salvation is a deliverance of human beings out of the destiny of everlasting hell, which all people deserve. And, and, and salvation then is a giving them of everlasting life in the kingdom of Christ, which they do not deserve, which is to give a gift of mercy and of grace. During this past week, uh, Julie and I traveled... Uh, from here in North Carolina, uh, 600 and some miles, down to Florida, the Orlando area. And as we passed through South Carolina um, along I-95, Interstate 95, we saw many billboards that had this very simple statement. Forgive my sins, Jesus. Save my soul. And I thought on the drive down, and I thought on the drive back, whoever is responsible for these signs 
He gets it right. This is why Jesus came. He came to save. Salvation is the mission. What I want us to think of in response to this is this season is a season of great sentiment and great sentimentalism. We need to ground our sentimental feelings about this time of the year, that happened during this time of the year, in the right sentiments. The cradle is for the cross. Jesus came into this world to die. The mission is salvation. Now, secondly, returning to verse 21, we note that salvation is for Christ's people. We read in this verse, to save his people. They are the focus of his mission. Now, the big question happens to be, of course, biblically, who are they? Who are the people of Christ? Who are his people? Now, the New Testament gives us extensive descriptions of who the people of Christ happen to be, how to define his people. And we know that it happens to be those who are believers, those who are disciples, those who are born again. We know in, in the in the aggregate, it's, it's the church, it's the bride, it's the sheep, it's those who together and individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We know it's the new Israel. We know it's the covenant people of God. We know we can cause the, speak of them as the redeemed, the elect, believers, saints. All of those particular concepts and ideas define what the angel tells Joseph here in the dream. He shall save his people. His people. Now, with respect to all of these things, I want to focus on one theme out of these many descriptions. How the concept of his people refers to all those that the Father has given to the Son, who are then adopted into the family of God as the brethren of Christ. I want us to think about those that the Father has given to the Son, and then how those that the Father has given to the Son actually become his brethren. Let's think about this for a moment. The Gospel of John is one of the best places to uh, actually examine this concept because at least five times, specifically, we read John recording uh, words uh, of the Father to Christ or Christ speaking about this of those that the Father had given to him. So John chapter 6, verses 36 to 40, if you want to turn there. Uh, This is that famous uh, bread of heaven passage. And Jesus says, verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So there it is. All that the Father gives me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him 
should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So there are three times in those verses, Jesus speaks of all that the father had given to him, that he should lose none of all that the father had given to him. And all that the father had given to him, he's going to raise them up on the last day. Then in John chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, uh, Jesus, in, in, in reference to the relationship that he has with the father, says this, my father, who has given them, meaning his sheep, who have given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then we come to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, uh, beginning first with the first couple of verses. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Then down in verse six, as he continues to pray, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Then verse 9, continuing, he says, I am I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, think what we've just read. Jesus keeps referring to those who are redeemed and all those who are redeemed, those who will be resurrected on the last day, uh, those uh, who come to him to be saved as those that the Father had given to him. They are the Father's gift, as it were, to the Son. But then we go on to read in the New Testament about how those who are given to Christ, uh, the spiritual reality is that they become the family of Christ. And the best passage to see this is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, we read these words. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he, this is speaking of Christ, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, verse 10 speaks of many sons. Verse 11, those who are sanctified, speaking of the many sons. Verses 11 and 12 speak of brothers. And then you have the repeat in verse 17, his brothers. Verse 13, the children God has given me. Verse 16, the, the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, the people. Now, when we put all of these things together, looking at verse 21 again, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus has come to save his people. His people are all those whom the Father has given to the Son. And, and they become then the children. God has given these to him. And because they are God's children, they are his brothers and sisters. They are his adopted family. Or we can look at it this way. Before the Father gave his Son to the world, the Father gave the Son a people out of the world, out of the lost sons of Adam, a people to be his own possession. And the Son came into the world to die for them. Salvation is the mission. Jesus came to save his people. Lastly, out of verse 21, this salvation is from their sins. To say, as the angel said, that Jesus will save his people from their sins means that there is this thing called sin, sin in all of its terrible dimensions and in all of its terrible destructions, which is the problem that God has addressed in sending Jesus into this world and nailing Jesus to the cross. If I say anything more, I want us to understand something that is of crucial importance here biblically, theologically, for how we understand the work of the church and the work of the gospel. There are those who want to say the gospel is more than Jesus coming into the world to pay the penalty for our sin and for us being saved. They want to see within the gospel what many of us would call, no, those are the consequences of the gospel. They want to think that the gospel involves things like societal transformation. But I want to return back to the two examples that I gave you, the pro-life movement and the racial reconciliation movement. I want you to think about those two things because they have their direct counterparts in the Greco-Roman world into which Jesus came and into which the gospel first came. Abortion was a terrible problem within the Greco-Roman world, as well as infanticide. 
And of course, slavery provided 60% at least of the population of the empire and was the very engine upon which the economy of the Roman Empire operated. But when Jesus comes to the Corinthians, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we say that those who do not include within the gospel societal problems such as the pro-life movement or the abortion issue or the problem of of, of racial matters that have not been fully reconciled. If, if, if pastors do not put those things into their gospel, then somehow they're not biblical. I don't know how we can handle the Apostle Paul. I, I really don't see how we can reconcile this idea that the gospel is more than Jesus coming to save his people from their sins. I don't how, understand how we can say then that Jesus himself says to the Corinthians, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, I believe there's a tremendous world and life view, a, a whole Christian philosophy of life, a whole program of social action that flows out of the Christian faith that flows out as consequences of the gospel. But I believe the gospel is essentially Jesus Christ and crucified. I think the scriptures are clear on this. And so we look at 1 Peter 2.24, which is a precise statement of the mission of salvation. And Jesus dying for our sins. For he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or Colossians 2, 13 and 14. God, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Sin is a great moral debt to God, and Jesus has paid the debt. Sin is the great enslavement without the gospel breaking the bonds of sin, without Christ paying the ransom that releases us from the bondage of sin. We have no good news for a broken world. But this is what Christ did. Sin renders us objectively guilty before the justice of the law of God. But on the cross, Jesus expiated our sin, which removes that guilt. It cancels that guilt because justice has been satisfied with his death. Sin is that great moral stain of unholiness and ungodliness and wickedness. It is like a leprous, vile contagion. It, it putrefies everything that it is good. Everything sin touches becomes ungodly and wicked. And God's 
holy wrath takes his holy and just vengeance against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men. But Jesus is the propitiation for sin. His death on the cross covers that moral stain with his own blood and washes away the vileness of sin. It removes God's wrath and brings to us, through faith in Christ, reconciliation and peace. Jesus came to save. Salvation is the mission. Salvation is for his people. Salvation is to save his people from their sins. And that's the gospel. It's about the cradle to the cross. It's about why Jesus came and what Jesus did to reconcile us from the Father. All of the sentiments aroused in us during the Advent season must be anchored to the truth of the gospel. Charles Wesley, first stanza, Come thou long expected Jesus, speaks of this truth, that Christ was born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So let's revisit where we started. Sentiment and sentimentalism. Without sentimentalism being grounded in a sentiment that's grounded in truth and reality, it simply amounts to having feelings that are unattached to anything that is real. Now, this is how songs like uh, White Christmas are pure sentimentalism for so many Americans. Uh, we are not dreaming about like white Christmas is just like the ones we used to know because some of us have never known a white Christmas. And we're not having chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And, you know, the sort of, a, as my wife will always say, nor are we having chipmunks roasting on an open fire. And I'm thinking of Theodore and Simon and poor Alvin. We are also not considering, oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. There's no reality attached to that for most of us. Nor are we lamenting the comical tragedy that Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Rather, our sentiments and our songs must keep the cradle to the grave connection, the cradle to the cross and to the grave and to the resurrection connection. And Mark Lowry did this when he wrote his song, Mary, Did You Know? As I read this, look for that connection in these now very familiar lyrics. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know 
that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kissed the face of God? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb. The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Brothers and sisters, remember the cradle and the cross. Amen. Our God and Father, enable us through all the sentiments and feelings and all the stress and noise of this season and to keep our eyes focused on what is the gospel, what is true. As the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the truth that you have given to us. That is our inheritance. And may all the feelings we have through this season be the sentimentalism of sentiments that are grounded in your gospel truth. That Jesus might be lifted up and glorified in our lives.